Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. Make sure to subscribe to the Ringer's YouTube channel to watch the newest episode of Slow News Day with Kevin Clark, featuring NFL MVP Lamar Jackson. And in anticipation of the NBA's return in late July, NBA Desktop with Jason Concepcion is back to posting weekly episodes. Also up on our YouTube channel are the best clips taken from this week's Bill Simmons podcast, Rewatchables, and Higher Learning with Rachel Lindsay and Van Lathan. You can find all these videos at youtube.com slash The Ringer. Media consumers, this is the Press Box. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer here. We got a lot of stuff for you today. We'll talk about that racist incident Sunday involving NASCAR driver Bubba Wallace, who called for his sport to ban the Confederate flag. We'll talk about the temporary end of the newsroom. What are journalists going to do when they get lonely? All that plus David guesses the strain pun headline and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But first, David... Donald Trump had a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Saturday night. His subject was not George Floyd. It was not the coronavirus. It was how Donald Trump walks down a ramp. And this was a steel ramp. You all saw it because everybody saw it. This was a steel ramp. It had no handrail. It was like an ice skating rink. And I said, General, I have a problem. And he didn't understand that at first. I said, there's no way. You understood? I just saluted almost 600 times. I just made a big speech. I sat for other speeches. I'm being baked. I'm being baked like a cake. I said, General, there's no way I can make it down that ramp without falling on my ass, General. It's really hard for any clip to do the experience of watching that live justice. Um, But I think my favorite part of the whole dissembling of the ramp incident was that he didn't actually really try to lie about anything. He just sort of like admitted it in all of its just ridiculous glory. Right. I mean, I don't know how many people in the audience. And again, I don't, I don't want to, you know, overgeneralize about Trump's supporters, particularly the the live audience sort. but like, I don't know how many of them were heard what he said and were just like, yeah, that happens to me all the time in my leather sold dress shoes. Uh, But, which, by the way, anybody that owns leather sole dress shoes is probably familiar with the concept of scuffing them so that this sort of thing doesn't happen unless you're just like exclusively a denizen of a ivory tower or marble floored mansion, something of that sort. Um, Even then, marble marble sounds pretty slippery to me. Yeah, (laughs) maybe you're right. Um, But yeah, I mean, there is definitely something. I think we can all appreciate to just, if you say the thing, the embarrassing thing out loud in front of people, it becomes less embarrassing. You sort of own it. Yeah. But Trump didn't seem to be particularly self-effacing, except in a few very slight moments. Those are probably the best moments of his entire speech. He mostly, he just, he seemed like, like the truth of the matter would bail him out when in fact the truth of the matter is what we were talking. Like no one was making fun of him for the circumstances that led to him having to go down that ramp. Except for me talking about the, the the advanced scout, the advanced people, but he just he walked out. It was just the the visual of him walking down the ramp was just hilarious. That's it, and it still is. His his explanation did nothing to change that. In case you're incredibly confused right now, what Donald Trump was talking about was he gave a speech at West Point 
to graduates on June 13th. And as he left the stage, a video caught him taking David mincing steps, would you say, down the ramp afterwards? <laughs> yes, I think so. Is this, the, is this the time the word mincing was, was invented time, for him? Yeah. I'm not kidding. And David and I watched this Trump speech live on Saturday night. I'm not kidding when I say Trump justifying his slow walk down the ramp was arguably the main point of the speech. Arguably the main point. Here's Trump doing some play-by-play of his journey down the ramp. So what happens is I start the journey inch by inch, right? And I was really bent over, too. I didn't like that. You know, I didn't like this picture. This picture, I'm sure, will be an ad by the fakers. So I was bent over, right? And and just freeze it right there, Erica. What you can't see right now is Trump is actually walked away from the microphone. He is hunched over, <laughs> and he is recreating the walk down the ramp for the people yeah. there. People there in Tulsa. Here, anyway, please continue. And then we finally reached almost the end. And the fake news, the most dishonest human beings, they cut it off. You know why? Because when I was 10 feet short, I said, General, I'm sorry, I'm and I ran down the rest, right? I looked very handsome. That that was the only good thing. Um, disagree on, on multiple grounds there. The, the version of the, the video that I saw, at least the first, at the beginning, certainly had him making that weird uh, closing lope down the down the ramp uh and he did not look uh, particularly handsome uh, when he was doing that nor heroic nor athletic nor whatever other thing you might want to call it yeah i always find myself looking for moments when i can identify with trump on anything cuz i can't on any matter of politics certainly on the more gruesome aspects of his personality which we'll get to here in just a moment but I do know that feeling when you're going down a hill, especially as you get older and mm-hmm. you first try to walk down the hill really slow. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, I can't do this. This is actually just not working. So I'm just going to run down the hill really fast. Yeah. And that's how I will get down with that. I do understand that. Right. <laughs> there is something to that. Now, whether the fake news media, quote unquote, trim that off the video, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I do understand the impulse there at some at some level. Throughout this speech. Throughout this portion of this speech in which he was diagramming his descent down the ramp and subsequently uh, discussing drinking water, we'll get to that. Um, He was accusing the fake news media, again, pointing to the actual media members in attendance uh, and saying that they have twisted the truth to to serve their anti-Trump agenda. But again, he's just admitting to everything that happened step by step. He's diagramming out the thing that ran on the news. And by the way, it's really much less of a fake news media sensation or that moment compared to the attention it got on you know social media, which is presumably not the target of his ire. Yeah. And the other funny thing he says is he's talking about the media taking all of this out of context, but then he just goes off and says, well, something is actually wrong with Joe Biden. So he's saying, don't look at a video of me taking small <laughs> steps and try to infer something that's wrong with me. But let me go ahead and do that about Joe Biden. Anyway, after West Point, 
Trump called Melania to check in. Listen to how that went. But I called my wife and I said, how good was it, darling? She said, you're trending number one. I said to our great first lady, I said, let me ask you a question. Was it that good, the speech, that I'm trending number one? Because I felt it was really good. No, no, they don't even mention the speech. They mention the fact that you may have Parkinson's disease. It's true. It's true. <laughs> of all of the of all of the lies he would go on to tell, um, that's the I think that that to me was the most the most galling lie of all that he called Melania to ask her how she thought his speech went upon leaving West Point. Uh, I I don't know if you can like do an FOI request to actually like get a transcript of that phone call, but uh, my guess is that one didn't actually take place. Now at that same June West Point speech, there was another video of Trump having to use two hands to kind of bring a glass of water to his lips. In Tulsa this weekend, do you think Trump quickly moved on to the economy in his speech, or do you think he did yet another long riff on why he held a glass? that way to protect his silk tie. The answer may surprise you. You had on a very good red tie that's a sort of expensive. It's silk because they, they look better. They have a better sheen to them. And I don't want to get water on the tie. And I don't want to drink much. So I lifted up the water. I see we have a little glass of water. Where the hell did this water come from? Where did it come from? And I look down on my tie, because I've done it. I've taken water, and it spills down into your tie. It doesn't look good for a long time. And frankly, the tie is never the same. So I put it up to my lip, and then I say, because I don't want it, just in case. And they gave me another disease. They gave me another disease. What Trump is doing there at the end is actually drinking a glass of water on the stage with one hand to prove to the audience that he could do it. Now, Saturday, David, was the first Trump campaign rally in three months. We have protesters in the streets of the United States. We have the coronavirus raging in parts of the country. Trump did not move on from those two perceived slights, the ramp and then the water glass, until the 36-minute mark of his speech. There were all kinds of detours about how Trump had gotten a sunburn at West Point, et cetera, et cetera. Now, and I just want you to just, just again, just before we move on to what he actually said, just listen to the evident disappointment in Trump's voice when he dismounts from all this complaining about his treatment on social media and starts <laughs> reading the teleprompter of the speech he was actually supposed to give. Okay, that's enough of that. I wanted to tell that story. Does everybody understand that story? The left-wing anarchists tore down a statue of Thomas Jefferson. Now we're getting into the real stuff. <laughs> Did everybody understand that story? Okay, uh, where was I? Joe Biden is a member of Antifa. Uh, yeah, just, just completely different tone in those two things. The big news, David, from Saturday night was that, <laughs> was that Trump had a bunch of empty seats Team Trump yeah. told us they got 1 million ticket requests. They said, we're going to pack 19,000 people into the BOK arena. 
and have this big outdoor overflow area that will be so full that Trump will have to give a speech there, too. He's going to give a speech outside. He's going to give a speech inside. Well, according to the fire marshals, Trump only drew about 6,200 people, which didn't even fill up the arena. The outdoor stage was taken apart before the speech even started, much to Trump's apparent wrath. As the Ringer's Justin Charity noted in a piece that's up on the site now, reportedly the 1 million ticket requests included countless registrations from subversive K-pop fans and TikTok users. Oh my gosh. Well, you know the campaign's going well when the campaign manager is uh, loudly pushing back against any insinuation that the that the ticket the ticket allocation process might have been gamed by K-pop fans because he so fears for his own job security. Um, and that's eating up oxygen from the competing claims from the White House that, uh, you know, uh, there were nefarious a- actors afoot, or also, I guess, there, there, Trump's claims, kind of vague. The night of the of the of the speech were that there were bad actors outside on the streets, protesters or whatnot, who were somehow that prevented the the speech that was he was supposed to give before the speech, the the outside speech to the overflow crowd, and I guess yes. implicitly prevented people from getting in to the speech. Explicitly, yes. That was that was part of it. And by the way, didn't you love when when we started having those funny pictures of all the empty seats and immediately the Twitter scolds showed up and said, well, you know, attendance at a rally does not mean that Trump is going to lose the election in November. You know, <laughs> that that is not. Can't we have our fun? <laughs> Do we? Can you give us like 10 seconds to laugh at this before we get the Well, you know, that doesn't mean Biden's going to win. I, well, listen, I, I don't. I don't want to insinuate any sort of media bias on anyone's side, but I did flip it. I think at the, towards the very beginning of the speech, I flipped from, I think from MSNBC, which had a sort of was, you know, the camera was pulled back and there was a lot of empty space in the sea of, or in the floor space in front of him. It looks sort of like, you know, like midnight at Hillary's uh, victory party, you know, or, you know, when, <laughs> after all the results had started rolling in and then you flip over to Fox and it's like, it's a, it's a tighter zoom, a very, a really tight zoom. And you wouldn't know from looking at it that there were, you know, that there wasn't 20,000 people crammed in there. Dude, this is so true. And I've been talking to producers about NFL games in the fall mm-hmm. and what's going to happen when there are no fans in the stands. And so many producers have told me, no, you're just going to shoot the game tight so that you can't see the stands, right? Cameras are going to be a little bit tighter on the players. That's what Fox News did to the Trump rally. They shot it like an NFL game in the fall. Yeah. And I noticed absolutely the same thing. And he was, it was all of a sudden, he was like, oh, well, there's no there's no more shots of the empty stands here. This place looks like it's rocking. Yeah. Um, you know, on MSNBC, that before I flipped over, they were talking about how Trump was starting on time or relatively on time, which is unusual for him. And that was probably they they implied it or they guessed that it was because he was so disappointed with the crowd turnout that he wanted to sort of get the speech over with. It certainly looked like he was, you know, he got into a little bit of a zone once he got out there. It didn't, he didn't seem like he was overflowing with disappointment, although most of the post facto reportage from, you know, Politico and The Times and other places have, have definitely. Uh, you know, assured us that he was in fact very disappointed with the turnout. Yeah. Um, I saw Mark Leibovich just tweet that, that we're up now for another week of Trump is seething stories. You know, mm -hmm. this is just like a recurring, this is like every month of his presidency. There's like a three or four day period where Trump is seething. Trump is currently seething. Apparently. Yes. Uh, yeah. Trump is indeed seething. Um, he, you know, he has a lot of time to seethe. you know, I mean, he's all that he's, he's, uh, 
he doesn't get to go on the road as much as he wants. I mean, maybe now he'll be out there more. And, uh, you know, according to John Bolton, he he's only he's taking the bare minimum of intelligence briefing. So he's got a lot of seething time built up. Maybe that's what that per, what was it? What was it called? Presidential time? What was it? Uh, what was his personal executive time, time? Executive time. A lot of executive time to seethe. Trump never got around to mentioning George Floyd in the speech, the New York Times noted. Never got around to mentioning the destruction of Black Wall Street in Tulsa. He did get around to some racism, though. If you remember, David, CBS reporter Weijia Jang, she's the one who asked Trump a few months ago about coronavirus testing, and he said, ask China. That was his response to her. And she said, why are you asking me that, Mr. President? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, back in March, Weijia Jang tweeted that an anonymous White House official referred to coronavirus to her as the, quote, Kung flu. Okay. On Twitter, there were some people who said, I don't think that's real. That's the fake news media. Ah, here's Trump Saturday night. It's a disease without question, has more names than any disease in history. I can name Kung flu. I can name 19 different versions of names. Oh, my God, he admitted. <laughs> that is just like the kind of platonic ideal of the of, of like just the bad Trump joke where he goes in with this like totally unworkshopped dad joke that you I'm sure just sounded good to him when he like said it to his aide and they chuckled or something. But yeah, this this disease that has so many names, it has like what, four or five if you want to be racist and and, it's, and he can't even name the second one. Like, no. if you put him on the spot, then he wouldn't have been able to say coronavirus. I mean, it's just nuts. There's also this wild admission about coronavirus testing. And what we've done with the ventilators and with the medical equipment and with testing, you know, testing is a double-edged sword. We've tested now 25 million people. It's... Probably 20 million people more than anybody else. Germany's done a lot. Uh, South Korea's done a lot. They call me, they say, the job you're doing, here's the bad part. When you test, a, when you do testing to that extent, you're gonna find more people, you're gonna find more cases. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. Team Trump tried to say he was joking after that. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm actually, I don't think it's, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I just no. think there's some things you don't joke about. There's some things that are just so beyond the pale that like, it doesn't matter if you're joking when you're the president saying you got to slow the testing down. I mean, that's like, but wait, wait, like, wait, let me clarify. There's a hundred percent the chance that Trump said in the Oval Office, slow the testing down. <laughs> yes. Like he, he made that comment 100%. Now, whether they actually slowed the testing down, I'm willing to, I'm willing to wait for the reporting, but there's a hundred percent Trump ordered that to happen. Yeah. Oh yeah. In I mean, listen, manner. It, there, there were just so many moments in this little diatribe alone where his, it was clear that his grasp on just the concept of illness was is just as tenuous as hell. Right. I mean that like a virus, like he, like that. It, I mean, it really felt like he thought that you could stop the virus by pretending it didn't exist. And to think that, and, he, and I mean, I presume that's not true, given the benefit of the doubt, but. <laughs> presume it's be, not true that you can't stop the virus by pretending it doesn't exist. I, I presume he doesn't actually believe that, but that's. So far, I mean, not so good on that score. 
Well, I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I just don't know how you can say any, I mean, that's, you know, we have rules against saying things are beyond the pale, but. He barely talked about it. Yeah. I mean, he barely, basically didn't address it. I mean, the one thing, when he got to the second half of the speech, we got past the ramp, we got past the drinking water, we got past that, whatever that was. Um, then he started to try to make the case against Joe Biden at least begin to outline, like, how is Donald Trump going to attack Joe Biden in the fall? And I think this clip basically, again, he, he's kind of going on and off prompter here, so it's really hard to follow his train of thought. I think this clip kind of gets at where he's going and maybe some of the drawbacks of where he's going on that. If the Democrats gain power, then the rioters will be in charge and no one will be safe and no one will have control. Joe Biden is not the leader of his party. Joe Biden is a helpless puppet of the radical left. There's this really weird tension between the different, I mean, you mentioned it before, between the, the scripted and unscripted parts of the speech, but this one I thought was particularly tension-filled because the scripted parts weren't like some like high-flying, pro-American, you know, monologue, they were as like weird and conspiratorial and in the weeds as most of his regular speeches. And to hear him giving it in that sort of like, I'm reading this for the first time voice was just kind of, it was bizarrely unsettling, right? I mean, and I don't think that the line of attack is, well, I mean, I, I may think it's kind of pretty despicable, it doesn't surprise me that he's taking it, but it did sort of surprise me that he seemed like he wasn't really prepared to deliver it. That of all things seemed like something he could have workshopped a little bit more. I agree. And if you listen to the crowd and I saw a bunch of people on Twitter make this point, the lines about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the anarchists and the protesters and all those, those lines got a big cheer from the crowd. The lines about Biden really didn't because sitting there arguing that Biden is going to be a puppet of the far left doesn't really match anybody's idea of what reality is. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. that's sort of what Republicans say about all Democrats at some point, but that is that, that does not seem like a winning message. No, I mean, it's more of, I mean, it's a kind of a big idea argument, right? Like, I mean, if you, if you kind of pull all the pieces together and deliver them coherently, then, you know, Joe Biden, who was, who barely squeaked out of a primary with these like, you know, far left opponents running, you know, all his opponents running to the left of him in ver on various issues. And now he's just hiding in his basement. And so like to say, and, and, and avoiding, uh, again, from Trump's point of view, avoiding the kind of onus of, of, of leadership while these left wing forces run wild in the country. You can, I, I guess you can see the thread of, of what could be an argument there. I just, Trump was not, just, I mean, not prepared to to make the case. And you're right. I mean, I, I don't think people are inclined to immediately see Joe Biden in that way. You have to make the case. Yeah. And I don't think they're going to get there. And it just, this all feels like informed by Fox News, right? If you look at Fox News, like that's, he's going through the gallery of people they attack on a nightly basis. Mm -hmm. But Joe Biden is harder, right? People know people have a people have an opinion of Joe Biden or they associate Joe Biden with certain things. Right. He won the Democratic primary for a reason. Right? So, you know, but he ran on a very, very particular platform and during the Democratic primary. So saying 
he's just he's AOC, he's Green New Deal, he's this and this and this. Ooh, that's a weird one. Um, unable to land any punches on Biden, David. I want to leave you with this sound clip. Trump was able to focus in on a familiar enemy. She doesn't want those bird killing machines to go round and round. You want to see a lot of birds that are dead go under a windmill sometime. Donald Trump is literally tilting at windmills. All right, David, now it's time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. Did you enjoy David? Some of the news pictures of like one guy sitting alone in a completely empty section of seats at the BOK arena there in Tulsa over the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it was, it was a sad scene up there. A couple of good gags. Uh, number one, a Trump rally is now the easiest place in the world to socially distance. Also like <laughs> this one. I still think Josh Rosen can be good in the right system. Thanks to <laughs> Andrew Redston and Johnny Rads. Story on the front page of today's New York Times, David, quote, Theodore Roosevelt statue will be removed from the Museum of Natural History in New York City. The memorial has long prompted objections as a symbol of colonialism. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. How about replacing it with a statue of Robin Williams? Yes, <laughs> that is a night at the museum joke. And yes, it was made by Ben Stiller, among other people. Thanks to <laughs> Javi Perez. And finally, this happened when we were thinking about other things, but I bring it back now. In response to the protests across America, David, the Paramount Network canceled the show Cops. Canceled the show Cops. It was an overworked yeah. Twitter joke to write, wow, they already defunded the police. <laughs> Thanks to Jeremy Raponich. If you're willing to let an ancient Fox show be the first step on the road to societal change, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. David, we're going to talk about Bubble Wallace and NASCAR, but first, this message from the ringer.com. If you've been dealing with acne, redness, dark spots, or wrinkles, finding treatment that works can be complicated. You need skincare that actually performs, but getting started can be overwhelming. Thankfully, there's a solution. Roman makes it convenient to get customized prescription care that really performs. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online consultation you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. If appropriate, a doctor will prescribe a custom blended treatment based on your skin type and priorities. You'll receive your custom skincare treatment with free two-day shipping. You'll also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor if you need to make the change to your treatment or have any questions. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. Go to GetRoman.com slash PressBox to try out a free three-month supply of nightly defense for just five dollars it's free to chat with the doctor and your first order is just five bucks that's getroman.com slash press box eligibility requirements and additional terms apply all right david in the notebook dump let us go to the world of sports because two weeks ago nascar driver bubba wallace the only black driver in the series convinced NASCAR to ban the Confederate flag from events and facilities. That was a big deal. Yeah. Well, on Sunday at the NASCAR scheduled race at Talladega in Alabama, a member of Wallace's team found a noose in his stall. To repeat, a fucking noose 
Here's ESPN's Marty Smith last night. I love Talladega, Alabama. It's my favorite place on the NASCAR tour. It's my favorite race. I love the staff here. And then some, I'm about to say words I'm not allowed to say. Something like this happens in the garage area, in Richard, in the garage area of Richard Petty's race car. For a young man in Bubba Wallace who has galvanized so many people because he was willing to stand up for something that is so long overdue. And NASCAR's current management level, executive level, agrees that it was time to take this stand. And then somebody goes and does this. You're not just hurting one or two people, whomever you are. You're hurting a whole lot of people who have made the decision that it's damn sure time to go be better. And it pisses me the hell off. And it pisses everybody else in the sport off who care. Who care not only for Bubba, but for every single person that he is standing up for. NASCAR has launched an investigation. The Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division might get involved. Bubba Wallace himself says in a statement, this will not break me. I will not give in, nor will I back down. I will continue to proudly stand for what I believe in. I mean, I often find myself saying, uh, I couldn't, I can't say it any better than Marty Smith did. Um, but he, he really nailed that. I think, uh, you know, kudos to NASCAR for making this, you know, the decision to, to, um, ban the Confederate flag in the first place. Uh, it would be nice. I mean, and, and, you know, not taking anything away. It would be nice to have a little bit more of a, definitive statement from them like you know we will fire people we will find out who did this the people who did this and fire everybody who could have possibly been involved um but yeah uh it, it was a i mean it really i guess the bright side is it really has the the feeling of the sort of last gasp of a dying generation but uh if that generation, I mean, if only that weren't such a dangerous, such a, you know, such a potent force in America right now, it, it would, uh, I think it would be, it would feel a lot different, but this it's just, it's just sad. Yeah. And I just, I hope it's, I hope it's a last gasp, but it sure feels like there've been a lot of last gasps <laughs> over the last, over the last several years, decades, however long you want to make it. I mean. I've been, we were originally going to talk today about some of the reckonings that have come to the sports world as mm -hmm. a result of the protests, right? I'm excited about a lot of things. Um, what's happened with college football players banding together, right? Mm -hmm. Taking a moment to rethink names like the Texas Rangers, our old hometown baseball team, and thinking like, wow, that, that organization was a tool of white supremacy. Should we be calling a baseball team that and actually having that conversation? Yeah. Rather than, you know, just blowing it off. Um, but as exciting as some of those things are, you remember, oh, right, there's going to be this backlash, right? There's going to be this huge, ugly, racist, vile, we can keep going here, 
backlash for stuff like this. Mm-hmm. That's about hate. That's about intimidation, right? Then it's just, and it's just completely sick. And I think this goes to a point you and I've talked about a little bit over the last couple of weeks. It's one thing to say you care about racism, right? Mm-hmm. It's another thing to make a tangible policy change like NASCAR did. Yeah. Now comes part three. And guess what? It's even harder. You've got to stand behind the people you care about in the face of a backlash like this, right? You yeah. have to stand up and say, this is our guy. And as you say, this will absolutely ever, 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 ever be tolerated. Yeah, you're right. I mean, even when when they announced the ban of the Confederate flag, you know, I think there was a tendency in a lot of corners just to sort of, you know, you personify that in some sort of like, you know, Bubba cartoon who's mad that he can't wear his stars and bars tank top to the races anymore. Or, you know, someone, I mean, that, that it's, you know, whatever, like you have your, your Dukes of Hazard beach towel that you wear as a cape to the races or something like that. And it's just almost like a comical thing. And clearly the background. And as we see repeatedly day after day, the current, the present day reality of this is not comical. You know, it's a terrifying, it's, it's real issues of mortality, you know? And I, and I, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. And it's not going to be easy. Right. I mean, I think this is a reminder that, Guess what? This this stuff is not is not going to be easy, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's not something that got solved. I mean, we're talking about we're having fanless NASCAR races right now, mm-hmm. which does, by the way, really raise an interesting question about who in the world got in there and put that in the garage area uh, to begin with. But also, this policy has not come under what's going to be its great tests, right? which is when fans come back to the racetrack in mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris is pointing out before we, we came on today that outside Talladega on Sunday, there were protesters driving by flying Confederate flags. So this is the thing and it's going to continue to be a thing. Um, I have been amazed, David, looking around sports world. We talked about the Texas Rangers. There's this new book cult of glory by Doug Swanson. And it has brought about all this change in Dallas Fort Worth, right? Statue came down at Dallas's Love Field. And now there's this whole idea of should we change the name of the baseball team, the Texas Rangers? That's that's fascinating to me. Um, we talked about college athletes. You got Kylan Hill, Mississippi State running back today, uh, tweeting, either change the flag of Mississippi, which can still which still contains the Confederate emblem, or I won't be representing this state anymore. And I meant that I'm tired. Also athletes at the university of Texas and UCLA coming together and demanding change. It's an amazing moment for sports. But like I said, I just feel that this is step one out of like 20. And now we get to see how all these institutions, conferences, commissioners, et cetera, try to follow through. Well, I mean, just as we're talking about this uh, news came across uh, our desks that all of the the entire field of NASCAR drivers, um, for the Talladega, the, the 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 Geico 500 Talladega Speedway pushed Bubba Wallace's car to the front of the field, um, in support of him, which is an incredible gesture. But you know, one worries 
one wonders if there'll even be, I mean, how much of an effect this will all have. I mean, you mentioned the protests. And we see it coming down from the top, you know? I mean, one you'd like to think that NASCAR making this decision would cause some people to think, you know? Does that I mean to, to to reconsider some of their their positions and their morality and everything else? But, you know, I mean, we see, you know, President Trump's own administration, her own, you know, government is is making coronavirus guidelines that he jokes about to his base, you know, shortly thereafter, as if like this is some big onus that's putting put upon that, that, that it's all some conspiracy theory. And it's just the it is. It's it's this is the first step, you know? I mean, the the all of NASCAR, drivers and and the organization are have a long way to go to kind of hold the line here. Um but congratulations, kudos to them for what they've done so far. It's it's what we've, you know, what happened in this case was particularly dark. Scary. Yeah. And like I said, congrats to NASCAR at least getting to step two, because we've seen so many step ones, right? I cut a Twitter video. I made a statement. Great. NASCAR mm-hmm. actually changed a policy. Great. Hey, guess what? A lot more work to do. Yeah. Tons more work to do. Let's spend a moment, David, here at the end, talking about the temporary end of the newsroom. I raised this because a memo came down from the New York Times. I saw this via Margaret Sullivan about when employees are expected to actually go back to the New York Times newsroom. It says, we will not require you to return to any of our offices until at least January 2021, the Times says. A handful of offices outside of New York have already reopened or will reopen soon. In those cases, employees' return will still be voluntary up until at least January 2021. Um, no employee will be required to return before January if they do not feel comfortable doing so. I thought this was a good moment or a good excuse for us to talk about newsrooms Mm -hmm. because, (laughs) and here are two, uh, newsroom employees speaking remotely over the, uh, over the zoom call right now. Journalists have not been in these for a while by and large. Mm -hmm. What, what are we missing out on? What, what's cool about a newsroom? Uh, depending on the newsroom you're in, um, you know, camaraderie, um, sort of interchange, exchange of ideas, uh, free coffee, um, <laughs> uh, you know, that's one thing structure in life. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things that there's going to work in general, but as far as newsrooms in particular, um, you know, I think we all sort of glorify the, the, you know, the movie newsroom, the, the, you know, editor kind of like smacking a paper on his desk and yelling across the room for somebody to get on a, get on a case, you know, get on a beat or whatever. Um, Shoemaker. But. Get down to city hall and get me a story. And he, and even if, exactly. And even if we, you know, it's not quite like that anymore. Um, there is that, I mean, that it's, it's still meaningful, you know, it's, it's still, I mean, the, 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 being in the presence of your coworkers and you know everyone else can be really an important part of the job. Well, the best thing about newsroom is journalists, right? Yeah, because other journalists, most of them anyway, have a beautifully jaded view of the world. That's what I love, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love walking. I love walking out of my house where I'm surrounded by family. Let's just say I had this big, you know, bundle of love and and a certain way of looking at the universe, and then you walk into the newsroom and everybody's in there going. Ah, did you read that piece by so-and-so? That that really sucked. Ah, you know, it was good, but here's what was wrong with it. I mean, just everything is everything is kind of jaded. I love that about journalists, right? I love yeah. this, I love the natural skepticism. 
I love the, you know, kind of way you relate to each other and, and relate to anybody in the business. I love the, the sense of that you're all on some weird shared mission, right? You've all picked this line of work. Yep. And I, and I think some other professions probably have that, but journalism has that in spades. It really does. You're all in this together in some way, even if you're competing with everybody else in the universe. Now, the downside is about newsrooms is that they are full of journalists. It's actually the same as the upside, right? Because <laughs> like, like 1.5 seconds elapses before someone cites a piece they just did that they would like you to compliment them on. So that, so yeah. that happens too, right? There's, there are some, there are some drawbacks, but I got to say, as somebody who lives in orange County and, and uh, you know, appears in the ringer newsroom once a week or so, I have really missed it this last three months of change. I'm not sure I have ever been as professionally lonely in my life as I have been for the last three and a half months. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Alan Siegel and Kevin Clark will tell you about the plaintive tone of my voice when I pick up the phone and call them. I mean, it is just like you do miss that reinforcement and you do miss that. I don't know, that sense of just. I guess some of it is, you know, being patted on the head, frankly, right? Until <laughs> like, hey, good job. Hey, hey, you're here. Hey, it's Brian. But some of it's just being around other people. Mm -hmm. And it makes me sad and it makes me lonely. We've gotten to this world where it's wonderfully we can all do this kind of remotely now. And it's not, you know, it's not like you said, like a movie from the 40s where the whole newspaper wouldn't come out if we weren't in the office together. But um, but I don't know. I, I understand why we're doing it. I totally support it, but emotionally it's hard. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's been said that, you know, one of the best things, one of the, one of the few positive things that's come out of uh, coronavirus is sort of realization that we can do this remotely. Right. I mean, that, that there's, that we have the ability to do this and certainly to kind of back up a little bit from that. One of the great things about doing what we do um especially once you kind of reach a certain level is that you you were always able to sort of do it on your own terms if not fully remotely right that like there like you know you might have a different working arrangement than the person next to you but there was nothing physically prohibiting Brian Curtis from spending a couple months in Australia or you know doing whatever with his family it's a for, for example there, there, for example um but one of the worst things about it is that, yeah, is that you can do it on your own and that and that there's this sort of presumption that like you are sort of you can function on an island uh, and it's a sort it's a really miserable way to live. You know, I mean, I, I, I certainly have a different feeling about showing up to do podcasts and just seeing all your faces on Zoom than I would have than I, you know, than I did prior to this whole thing. Right. I mean, I mean it's just like this is a lifeline in a lot of ways. Um, and I get the, you know, Ringer or, or more precisely Spotify or parent company is, is uh, you know, ex had previously extended the work from home until next year. And that sort of became, I mean, I'm sure they had a lot of good reasons for it. But to me, it felt like it was just sort of functional declaration at some point. It's just like we've been doing this a week, weeks or a month at a time for so long that we just have to sort of just say something, even if it miraculously goes away tomorrow. We got to give people some stability, you know, some ability to like predict the future even in such an un unpredictable time um but i think we are all everybody's sort of shaken by just the prospect of 2021 you know Jeez. i mean i can't i mean it's just uh we've come a long way you know but it, i mean in the, in the just in the past few months but uh 
you know, being in the being in the newsroom is is fun. <laughs> it's a good thing. You know what it's hard to do in the newsroom? What? Journalism. That's true. At least for me, because and this is where you can tell the the difference between people who grew up working at newspapers and people who grew up like us working at book publishers and, you know, relaxed institutions like slate.com and stuff like that. Cause the people that worked at newspapers, they've got like earbuds in They're They're like showing you funny stuff on the internet. They're just getting <laughs> up, walking all over the place and talking. And then you look down and they wrote a piece. You're like, what, when did that, when did you do that? When did you have the focus to, to make that happen? I can't do that. I really cannot. And that's why if I, if I want to write a story, I go home. (laughs) I don't don't want to be at the office because all I'm going to do is talk to people. Right. I'm going to talk to those journalists. I have those conversations with all those people I want to talk to. And, and I don't get anything done, but people who, who are at newsrooms from actual newspaper newsrooms, they have somehow mastered that art that they are constantly talking, constantly doing stuff, constantly walking around. And yet at the same time, committing acts of journalism. I don't know that I'm ever going to reach that level or master that state. I certainly haven't yet. Well, let's hope you get the opportunity to try. Uh, I, I don't quite know how to take that, but, uh, but, but thank you, Dave. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. All right. Something that requires complete silence. Uh, Thursday's headline was, was about Necco wafers. Headline was oh, Necco yeah. is back after being away for so long. Today's headline comes from Blue Shirts Breakaway, David. It's from Slate. The headline is atop a piece about the struggles of ice cream shops. As you might imagine, ice cream shops missed out on their usual springtime bonanza. Oh, yeah. Due, due to COVID-19. Also, you can't do takeout ice cream like you can do some other restaurant deliveries. So ice mm-hmm. cream is in a bad place. Okay. What was Slate's strained pun headline? Oh, man. Um, oh, God. Uh, ice cream, um, frozen, um, uh, lick, scoops. Uh, where am I going with this? Lick, Scoo- lick, uh, lick, lick, will, lick was getting there. Lick was getting there. Getting licked? Are they getting... The industry is getting licked. The ice cream industry is getting licked was actually the slate tweet. There is a slightly different headline on the story, though. Different pun. Mm hmm. Um, ice cream. The ice cream industry is having. Spill. Uh, uh, is a what? It's hot. Out. Oh, oh, uh, uh, uh it's. Uh, oh, uh, meltdown! Meltdown! The ice cream industry is having a meltdown. Yeah. All right. All right. Getting licked was funny too. That's a good one. I would have also accepted. We all scream for ice cream. Okay. <laughs> yes, that's what I should have said. That's exactly right. God. I bet that's been done a, a billion times, though. I remember I once worked with this editor, and he goes, "I'm so tired of whenever we have a story about aquariums." The headline is, this is the dawning of the age of aquariums. And I went, how are there been that many stories about aquariums that you even had a chance for a strained pun? But I have a feeling this is one of those. Just use it over and over again. Who cares? That's great. (laughs) That's the Press Box. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. We're back Thursday with Listener Mail. DMs are now open. I sort of figured that out belatedly. We should also do a... 
an item on the state of the presidential campaign, David, either between us or with a guest. That's four months away. Yikes. Uh, wow. Plus, I'm excited about this one. Joe Biden's digital divide. <laughs> plus more lukewarm takes about the media and other stuff. See you then, David. See you later, Ryan. <laughs>